In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to a firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, if I were to guess, this is not the first time you've heard that story. It's going to take a wild guess. At least uh, in the Western world, in Western culture, we know this story. Secular, Christian, doesn't matter. You know this story. You've heard this story before. This is the story of the first Christmas. This is the story of the birth of Jesus. And although today we're only really going to focus on two words in this story, I wanted to read all of it and really just capture with you for a moment how profound this event was. At the center of this this passage, we see this encounter between angels and shepherds. who who both of them represent very different ends of the spectrum. One's at the very top of all thinking, sentient creation, and the other one is at the very bottom. The angels are great in power, they're great in glory, they're great in majesty, and the shepherds are poor, they are lowly, they are humble, but both of these beings have something in common. They are capable of, they have capacities for worship. They can worship with their minds. They can worship with their beings. And this event seems to be as though God is wrapping his arms around both these classes of people, both these groups of people, and everything in between and bringing them close to him and says, this event is to show you my glory. This event is to show you my worth and my value. The angels worship in verse 14. The shepherds worship in verse verse 20. They are both glorifying God because of this event, this thing that the first angel reveals to them, this good news. The statement of good news and the reality of the good news is so staggering, so groundbreaking in this moment that it ignites a kind of worship of God that has never existed before in human history because this event has never happened before in human history. God sending his son. The angel says in verse 10 and 11, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is what ignites their worship. This is what kindles their affections for God. Good news of great joy, which the shepherds will go and validate firsthand by visiting this baby who's lying in the manger, this baby who the angels have told them is Christ the Lord. But rather than focus on all the details of this passage, we've done some of that in the past. God willing, we'll do some of that in the future. I want to focus on the cause of this worship. What causes them to worship? What causes angels to say glory to God in the highest? What causes shepherds to glorify God as they return to their sheep? And the answer is very clearly this good news, this good news of great joy, the news of a Savior, Christ, who is the Messiah of the Jewish people and the Savior of the entire world. But my question for us today, at the beginning of this series in December, this Christmas season, is what does the angel mean by great joy? Like, what is the joy that he's referring to? Have you ever read this passage and stopped to consider that? (laughs) I think we can read it quickly. We tend to read this passage quickly because we know the story. And and maybe as we're reading it, we link it to a general sort of vague understanding of what it would be for Jesus to come into this world, that kind of joy. Or maybe we link it to other joys in the Christmas season. We say, yeah, Christmas is a joyful season. But have we ever asked stopped and looked at this text and say, what is the angel, what's in the angel's mind as he is saying the words great joy about this news? And I'd like to take this month, the remainder of this year, and if God is willing, ask this question. What is this great joy? And not simply ask it from an intellectual perspective, because I think we can do that. I think we can ask it from a theological perspective and have a fact, a sentence at the end of the day. But I want to ask this from a personal, experiential perspective. I want to know this joy. I I, want to know it not just in my mind. I want to feel it. I want to know what it means for there to be great joy, this joy that the angel's talking about in my life, in my heart, in my being, the joy that ignited these angels to worship God, the joy that ignited the the worship and the fervency of, of delight from these shepherds as they were returning. I want that joy. And I want that joy for all of us. I want all of us to experience that. I don't want us to miss any part of that joy. And so I would ask you, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, where Peter spends, what, six, seven verses here exploring this great joy. I'm going to read through the entire text, and then we're going to to focus on a key aspect of it this this week. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Now, I, I personally do not know a passage in Scripture that zeroes in on the great joy of Luke 2 better than this passage from 1 Peter. There probably is one out there, um, but this passage for me is, is it. I was talking to Josiah earlier, and Josiah, um, I taught in kids three weeks ago, and uh, it was an awesome experience. If you haven't done that yet, you really do need to give it a shot. It, is, it was a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things kid, the kids do back there is they memorize scripture and they memorize catechism questions and answers. And uh, one of the things he asked me, he was, like, I, he was like, are you teaching in kids today? And I'm like, no, sorry, I'm teaching with the adults. And, and he's like, oh. He's like, well, do the adults memorize any scripture passages? And I'm like, you know, I don't know if they do. So I'm doing this for Josiah right now. I'm inviting you into this. If you want to memorize a passage of Scripture this season, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Embrace it with your whole heart. This is a commendable passage that is worthy of your consideration, contemplation, and memorization. It is, in this passage, it is as though Peter is drawing a diagram, like in a science book, of the anatomy of joy. And not just any, any random joy that you might experience in this world. This is the joy that is rooted in the good news of Luke 2. That there's a Savior who's been born into this world. And that Savior is Christ Jesus our Lord. And this passage orbits that reality and asks the question, what does it mean for us to have great joy? What does it mean for us to have great joy because of this good news that the angel's talking about, that a Savior has suddenly and miraculously infiltrated this world to save his people. Like, what does that mean to experience joy because of that? And there's enough here, really, like, we could camp out here for several months. I experienced some of that in preparation for this. I wrote, like, three sermons, and I had to condense it into one. There is enough here for multiple months. We're going to spend one month in this, and I'm going to ask God for his mercy to show us this joy in its fullness. And each week, God willing, we're going to look at one aspect, like one body part of the anatomy of joy and really seek what it means to understand and embrace how that aspect of joy relates to the experience that the angel was talking about in Luke 2. So my earnest prayer and hope is that God would not only open the eyes of our hearts to see this joy in all its glory, but that he would graciously invite us, draw us into the experience of its fullness. Every ounce of it. Every ounce of inexpressible joy filled with glory. Some of you in your Christian walk may read this text and say, I, I know that. I know that experience. I know. I, I feel it this morning. And some of you may look at this text and say, you know, I feel it for a time here and there, but I, I don't feel it the way I want to. I want this every single day. I want that joy every single day. And some of you may look at this text and say, I trust in Jesus, but I have never, ever described my joy with those words or felt like I could. And I want all of us, no matter where you are in that Venn diagram, I want all of us to experience this. It's my job as pastor. It's my job. It's my only job. Very simple. To make you happy in God. To make you happy in God through the gospel. And to ignite this radical, worshipful glory that is in this joy. That's what the center of what it means to be a Christian. So Peter begins in verse 3 with a blessing towards God. We'll put up on the screen here. He begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his, that's God's, great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, before we, we zero in on a specific part of the anatomy of joy that Peter is drawing here, uh, we need to set the table very quickly on, on why it is Peter begins with a blessing directed towards God. He says, blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Christmas type of blessing. This is a Christmas type of worship here. 
Peter is joining the angels, he's joining the shepherds in directing his affection, his worship, his praise toward God because of the gift of the Son of Jesus. Because of the gift of Jesus. That's what he's doing here. He says the reason for his blessing in this instance is because Peter's recognizing what happened when he first became a Christian. Peter says that according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And in the Greek, it can mean born from above. It's, it's intentionally vague. It's, it's valid in both translations. Born again, born from above. When we talk about being born again, it's really important, very important that we, we recognize what this is. We're talking about how God takes the good news of Luke 2, how he presses it into the soul of a human being, this reality that a Savior has entered the world and how he uses that news to create an entirely new human being. That's what he's doing. This isn't simply forgiveness of sins. This isn't simply turning over a new leaf. This isn't simply a, a, a blank slate that you get now because you've asked God for forgiveness and you've trusted Jesus. This is the creation of a brand new human being. For those who are born again, they are no longer defined by their sin. They're no longer defined by their selfish desires or passions. They are no longer defi defined by God's just wrath against their sin. This new person is completely, top to bottom, defined by one thing, the mercy of the living God. They are defined by God's mercy. That's what it says here. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God did this. God did this. And he did it according to his mercy. And this is why Peter begins with worship. This is why he starts this letter, the entire letter, by blessing God. If there is any good in your life right now, if there's any joy in your life right now, that good and that joy has come from the hand of God alone. And this is incredible news. This is incredible news because it, what it means is this, our receiving of joy in this life and our receiving of this inexpressible joy that we're going to focus on this month is not contingent on our performance. It is not contingent on whether or not we can earn it from God, stay on this grid so that he can give us this joy. It is contingent on the mercy of God alone. If it happens, it happens because he did it, not because we did anything. His mercy is what infiltrates our lives and our hearts, and his mercy, mercy brings about this new birth, and every single fruit of the new birth, every single fruit of becoming a Christian comes from this mercy, including the inexpressible joy that is filled with glory. And so the, the new birth is a, is a collision of God's mercy with the soul of a sinner. And in that moment, it creates a brand new human being who is identified by the mercy of God, by the love and affection of God. And they have very key differences in their lives. One of them is described in verse 3. Let's read this again. It says, According to his great mercy, to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. And so here's our focus for the time, uh, our time together today. As we mentioned, Peter's drawing a diagram the anatomy of joy, and this first aspect of this joy of being a Christian, this joy of Christmas, is this reality, a living hope. Peter says we are born again to, to a living hope. And so part of the experience of joy that we saw that was ignited in the hearts of, uh, of the angels and the shepherds as they worshiped in Luke 2 is connected to this hope, this hope. This living hope, this connection is vital. It's essential to see. Um, and so we need to ask, what is this hope? Um, and how is this hope, this living hope, different 
from all the different kinds of things you could hope for in this world. I mean, everybody in this world hopes for something. Whether you know Jesus or not, you are hoping for something. How is this different? And how is this connected to this great joy of Luke 2? You may assume or think or believe that, hey, Christians are generally speaking hopeful people. There's, there's various hopes that we find in this book for our daily lives, and uh, we cling to them. We hope that God helps us with this, or that we can trust God to walk us through this season, or, or that this comes through. We hope. But this text doesn't say that. This text says we are born again to a living hope. This isn't just an aspect of the Christian experience. This is the goal of the Christian experience. This is the, the purpose of the Christian experience. This is the inertia of the Christian life. It is a living hope that we are born again to. This word living, zao in the Greek, um, is interesting because it tells us this is not, he's not just using hope generally. He wants us to know that this hope is, is a living hope. It's not a, a dead hope. It's not an empty hope. It's a, a, a living hope. It's not like the other hopes that you find in this world. The other hopes in this world outside of Christ are temporary at best, but ultimately and eternally meaningless. They are temporary at best, but they are futile in the end. But this hope isn't like that. This hope is very alive. It is a living hope, which means the object of our hope, what we are clinging to in this text, whatever that is, is so great, so powerful, so gripping for the Christian who has encountered it that it will never die. It will always be a living hope. It will never die. It will remain forever. That's the hope that he's describing here. And now he's going to, in verses 3 and 4, explain why it can be that kind of hope why it's not like the hopes that you have in this world. Why does it have such a powerful grip on the Christian's heart? He tells us, verses 3 and 4, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is, get this, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, Peter says. And so we see here, this is the living hope. This is the nature of the living hope. We're born again to this living hope, and this living hope he describes here as being an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, for everyone who is born again by the great mercy of God. And then he describes how it is this hope came into being. How did this hope come into existence. He says that this new birth experience with this inertia towards this living hope happened through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how it came into being. Which is a, a massive link, if you think about it, between this passage and what we just read in Luke 2. Because both these texts are saying that our joy is inextricably linked to a man whose name is Jesus. Luke 2 focused on his birth, the coming of a Savior into the world, and 1 Peter is focusing on his resurrection, which necessitated his birth and his death and his rising again. And from that event of rising again, we get this living hope or risen hope which is obviously very connected to our name as a church. We get this living hope, this risen hope. And this event, this resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is, is how God goes about creating that new human, bringing about the new birth experience. This is how it happens. Those who are born again, who receive this Savior, who trust in Jesus, are suddenly anchored to an inheritance kept in heaven for them that Peter describes with three words. 
imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And, and I, I really hope those words hit you with the weight that they need to hit you. I hope they do. They're not just words. Because um, I, I want you to really consider the world we live in right now. Just consider this world that we have right now with us. And I want you to consider even your own life like before you were born again, or even the struggles you have right now in this world, outside of God's mercy, outside of the event that Peter's talking about in this text, these words have nothing to do with our world. They have nothing to do with our world, not the world we live in, not our lives outside of God's mercy. Think about each one of them. Think about how they relate to our present world. There is nothing in this world that we can call imperishable. Stars, even stars, perish. They die. Galaxies cease to exist. Everything, and I'm reaching for the greatest things I can conceive of in the natural world to say that every other lesser thing has the same problem. Everything dies with time. We are all, all of us are gripped by death. We are captive to a word. The scientific term is entropy. It is a, a decay that is corroding the universe. And it's a scientific fact. It's a fact. Well, we see it all around us. And it was first communicated to us in Genesis 3. It's called the fall. And it led to the death of humanity. Romans 5 is very clear about this. When death, when sin entered the world, death followed it like a shadow. And this is the world we have. And therefore, everything in this world, everything in this world perishes. And the reason why is linked to the next word, undefiled. Everything in this world, everything we have in this world has been defiled by sin. Everything. Everything. Everything we have in this world, everything we experience in this world has been penetrated by some degree or another by sin. It's been corrupted by sin. This is an objective fact. You don't even need to take my word for it. You just need to watch CNN for five minutes. This is the world we have. And this has polluted everything. We're not as selfless as we should be. You don't have to teach kids to sin, it comes naturally to them, just like it comes to us. It is very natural for us to, to be selfish with our time, to be selfish with our money, to be selfish with our stuff, um, even though we all do know at some level that it is morally right to be selfless. It is morally good to be selfless and to be loving and gracious. But this reality, this defiling has polluted everything. It's it's both the, the source of our perishing and it's the result of our perishing. Both of those things. The human race is captive to selfishness apart from the mercy of God. And you might say, Jeremy, you're <clears throat> it's a weird Christmas sermon for one. But secondly, you're stretching things a little bit because, I mean, think about this. Um, we're in Christmas. Christmas is the season for giving gifts. Um, and that must be selflessness to some degree. And I would agree with you. It, it can be selflessness. But I would like to ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why it is that we have to have a holiday to give gifts? As though giving is some kind of special, extraordinary occasion when in fact this is how it should always be. The reason why giving gifts is like a surprise, the reason why it's special, the reason why it's exceptional is because most of our desires, most of our affections are defined by a selfishness that tries to cling to things. We've been defiled by sin. So this word undefiled has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with us right now. And the last word Peter uses is unfading. And I think all of us know that things fade. We know what it means to fade away. Everything fades with time. Nothing ever feels new forever. Nothing ever feels exciting forever. You know this to be true because you purchased more than one cell phone in the last five years. 
because the old one isn't good anymore, isn't exciting anymore, or its battery that runs out because of Apple. But that's another. <laughs> um, or or uh, you bought another TV because 4K is better, or you bought uh, another com computer because the last one doesn't work as fast enough or save as much data as you wanted. You know this is an innate reality. There's entire industries that are built on this fact. Things fade with time. Everything fades in its splendor. Everything fades in its value. Everything fades in its glory. And then it needs to be replaced by something else. And then once you got that new thing, guess what? There's 12 other new things behind it that you will have to have. They're working on like five different iPhones right now that will come out in 10 years. And this is an experience we all know. Humans get bored. We get bored over time with stuff that may have been first exciting to us. And this is true because of these ten this tension, this these inverse effects of discontentment on one end that's always pulling at us, and then anticipation for something new and exciting on the other end. And these fight against each other because the human heart is inclined to be discontented. That's not right. It's not the way it was meant to be. That's what we have. It's the world we live in. And yet there is this anticipation that all of us know. Like, I mean, one of the reasons you go out and you buy that new device or you go out and go on that trip or whatever it might be is you, there's this anticipation that you experience and that is from God. That desire for something that actually doesn't get old is from God. C.S. Lewis once put, um, if we ourselves, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. There's a reason why we anticipate. There's a reason why we get excited about think, something that could be new forever. Have you ever said, you can fill the blank in this, I was really looking forward to X, but once it showed up, it wasn't all that I thought it was going to be. That is a universal human experience, and that's because things fade over time. And so this is our world. We've got these three words that he uses, and the opposites of them are perishing. That's our world. That de describes our world, and defiled, and fading. But Peter in verse 4 says that none of those things are true about our inheritance. They're not. Our inheritance the object of our living hope is imperishable. It is undefiled. And it is unfading. Now think about this. I just want your hearts to get this. I want you to do everything you can with your reasoning faculties, me included, to think about what this is, what this means. This inheritance will never perish. It will be around forever forever. And it will be in that time of foreverness completely free from every, even the most minuscule amount of defiling. It will be 100% pure for all eternity. And it will never fade away. It is the one thing that your hearts have always longed for, something that stays new forever just as exciting, if not more exciting, every passing moment. And this is the object of our living hope. This is our inheritance, according to Peter. This is the living hope, the focus of our new lives, our born-again lives, created by the mercy of God through the resurrection of Jesus, is this inheritance. And so I want to just think about this resurrection. For this to have happened, Jesus had to die and rise from the dead. That's what through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means. And so I want to pause and just recognize that the resurrection of Jesus isn't simply, it is amazing enough that a man rose from the dead. That's amazing. I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to downplay that. But it's not just that. It is not just that. When Jesus rose from the dead, it actually was a fundamental shift in how our universe functions. It was. 
we're not just talking about a localized event around one human being or around a group of people, Christians broadly. We're talking about the entrance into the universe of a reality that literally changes everything. When Christ rose from the dead, he brought with him into the universe this inheritance, something that is completely incompatible with everything that came before, something that is imperishable, that will never perish that is undefiled, that will never be defiled, that will never fade away. This is more than a man simply rising from the dead, as amazing as that is. This was the infiltration of our world by a living hope. And the object of that hope will be just as glorious 10,000 ages from now as it was the first moment you experienced it. But what is this inheritance? So what, what is, I mean, inheritance is a vague word to describe something you get when someone dies. Something you get because someone gives it to you. It is, it is a vague, general word. What is it that Peter's talking about here? What is it that our, our, our hope as Christians should be fixed on, anchored to? And how does that hope relate to the joy that we saw in Luke 2 in the shepherds, in the angels, the joy that Peter is going to articulate later on in this passage. Well, in this passage in 1 Peter, we see that there is an, an event in the future. He mentions it three times. We're not going to look at these three times in detail. We'll do those in the coming weeks. There's an event. In verse 5, he says, it is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's how he describes it. Verse 7, he says, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, he describes it as the salvation of our souls. It's an, an event. It's an event in the future, which is why it's hope to long for it. And it's an event where Christ saves those who belong to him. That's what he's talking about here. And so this event where our hope, our inheritance, has been kept in heaven for us for years and years and centuries and millennia, now invades our world and our lives at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to John describe this in 1 John 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's what we are. Everyone in this room who trusts in Jesus is a child of God. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we, we know that when he, that's Jesus, when he appears, we shall be like him. We'll be like him because we shall see him as he is. John is saying that when Jesus appears, we will, all of God's children will be like him because we're going to see him. We're going to see him as he really is. And this is exactly the same event that Peter's describing about in his passage. This is the inheritance that's going to be ours that day. Paul talks about it in Philippians 3, that Christ, when he returns, will transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body. It's us becoming like Jesus. All of the reality that's true about Jesus, except for his divinity, becomes ours in that event, in that moment. And this is real. This is re I want you to believe that this is real. I really do. This is not a fairy tale. This is not make-believe. This is not just something Christians want to believe. This is an event that will happen in human history. It's the greatest event of all of them. It's the greatest day of all of them. It will happen one day, and it will bring with, us, bring with it new bodies for us. It will bring with it um, bodies that are like his resurrected body, free from all of the things that trap us, kill us in this life, free from death, free from sin, free from discontentment, free from pain, free from suffering, free from sorrow. This day will happen. But here's the question I want to end our time together with. Is this ultimately the inheritance that Peter is talking about, that Peter says we're born again to? Is this the object of our living hope? Or is this just the means by which we experience it? Look at verses 8 and 9, back in 1 Peter 1. 
verses 8 and 9 answer this question. Peter says, though you have not seen him. So he's describing the Christian life, experiencing living hope in a moment, in life, in the present. Though you have not seen him, that is, seen Jesus yet, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you stunningly believe in him, and even more amazing, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the joy of Luke 2. This is the joy that was being depicted here. This is the joy Peter says that we experience if we've been born again to a living hope. This joy is given graciously to all people. Trust in Jesus Christ. If you want this joy, it's yours. Promised. But it is only experienced by anyone who actually does trust in Jesus. It is experienced by only those who have embraced Christ as their Savior. And in these two verses, Peter's telling us how the, the future reality of salvation, of Christ being revealed, comes into the present, pouring joy into the present life of the Christian today. He says, although you haven't seen him, you love him. Why is that true? You haven't seen him, but you're in love with him. You, you really love this person who you haven't seen. He's describing the life of a Christian as being in love with Jesus. And he says, even though you haven't seen him, even though you don't now see him, you believe in him, you trust in him, and what's more, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It is a present experience in the life of a Christian, even in the middle of all the brokenness that we experience in this world. And this year, our church has experienced a lot of brokenness. We've seen a lot of people pass away. We've seen a lot of people in our families who don't know Jesus. This world's filled top to bottom with brokenness like we were describing earlier, but somehow there is an inexpressible joy that infiltrates the heart of a Christian through this hope. And this is huge because Peter isn't describing a future event. There is a future event where salvation happens. Hope is the reason, I mean, the reason why we have hope is because we're longing for that future event. But this experience is a joy that can be experienced right now, today, today. And he calls it inexpressible, enekleletos in the Greek. This word means unutterable, like unspeakable joy. In other words, there is no, there is no language in all of humanity that is capable of adequately expressing this joy. There isn't. Which is why he says it is inexpressible. And it is the very same joy that was spoken about in Luke 2. So in these two verses, Peter is providing us an answer to the question, what is the inheritance? What is the inheritance of the Christian? What is the object of their hope? And the answer to that question is very simple. Jesus. Jesus is the object of their hope. It is in him that we hope. He is our inheritance. He is the focal point of our joy and our expectation and our longing. Our hope as Christians is to be with him forever, to be with him forever. His resurrection may grant us new bodies new hearts, new affections, new capacities for joy that we can't experience in this life, and 10,000 awesome things. It does. His resurrection gives us those things. Some of them we experience now. Some of them we're going to experience for all eternity when he comes back. But ultimately, it serves one purpose in the end, and that is to give us the best thing in the universe. Jesus Christ himself. There's nothing greater than Jesus. There's nothing greater than Jesus, this Savior, as the angel put it, who is Christ the Lord. 
He is at the center of our imperishable joy, our undefiled joy, our unfading joy. He is at the center of it. It's his glory that is filling this joy, not our glory. It's his glory that's being poured out into this joy. We can't see him, but we are in love with him. We want to be with him. We want to pursue him. We want to treasure him. We want to trust in him. He is everything to us. And Peter is desperate in this passage. And I'm personally like wrestling with this text for the last month. I am desperate to experience this. I want this so badly. I want to have this hope so badly, this great joy coursing through my heart. And as the angel says, this joy comes from the good news. Good news, you know what that is, the gospel. Part of it is Jesus having to be born into this world. But what makes him his, a savior isn't his birth. What makes him a savior is that God himself in entering this world goes all the way to the bottom of our brokenness. You don't get any further down than a wooden feeding trough. It goes all the way to the bottom. Underneath all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our poverty, all of our lack of capacity to experience lasting joy, he goes all the way there. But that's not where he stops. He goes lower still and trades the wooden feeding trough for a wooden cross. And on that cross, Jesus embraces all of our perishing. He embraces all of our defiling, the stuff that we do to defile others, the stuff that's been done against us that is defiling. All of that is embraced. He breaks everything that is fading away in order to make it new. To make it new in order to make us new. When he rose from the dead for the first time in human history, real hope entered the world. Hope finally ceased to be a word we use to describe something we long for. And it became a person. And that person's name is Christ Jesus. He's the focal point of our hope and of our inexpressible joy that is filled to the brim with his glory glory that is beyond our wildest dreams, our wildest imaginations. He is our inheritance. So after we pray here in a moment, we're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper. This is communion. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus as we do this, I'm going to ask that um, you take these elements and pray and just plead with God. Ask God to make this hope real for you. It is according to the mercy of God that it happens. Ask God, as you take the elements, to pour into your heart not only the living hope that anchors us to this inheritance, but to pour into your heart the inexpressible joy of First Peter. If your faith is in Christ, it belongs to you. Jesus died so that you would experience that joy. He paid for it with his life. And if your faith is not in him, and I, I honestly don't, I can't see into your hearts. I can't see into your hearts. If your faith is not in him, I'm pleading with you right now to want this joy. To stop playing around with secondhand joys that will fail you in this world and look at this joy. Cling to this joy. And I'm asking that you throw your heart into this, like throw everything you have into this one hope. There is nothing more beautiful than Jesus. I, I can promise you there is nothing more beautiful than Jesus Christ. Because although he was from all eternity filled with infinite glory and worth, he became nothing for our sake in order to redeem those who would put their trust in him. He became nothing for us. And you will find no other hope in the world greater than Jesus. You will find no other joy in the world that is more satisfying than Jesus, even in the middle of suffering. You will find no other joy in the world that is more glorious 
and more beautiful than enjoying and knowing Christ Jesus. You won't. And so I would ask that you do come to this Christ and you come to him as he really is. He is the greatest treasure in the universe. And when you come to him as that, I'm going to promise you something. The experience you have with him will be that he's not only the greatest treasure in the universe, which is amazing, but you will come to find that you were made for him. This is what you exist for. This is why you exist, is for him. And, and there is no joy in the universe that is, that is greater, more superior than knowing that and embracing it with your whole life. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this season of Christmas. We're grateful for the reality of Christ entering the world. The advent of Jesus as a baby in a manger who was born to take our sins away and to remove every barrier. And there are many between us and experiencing full and lasting joy in God and in his son, Christ Jesus. And so I'm pleading with you right now, no matter where we are on that spectrum, whether this is an experience we've had before, whether this is an experience we have very rarely, or whether this is an experience we've never had, Father, this inexpressible joy, I'm pleading with you to do that right now in these next few moments and this day in its entirety, in this week, in this season, Father God, that we would have a fresh experience of the gladness that is only found in Christ Jesus. We are, we are so desperate to know how much we are loved by you, to know how much it cost you to purchase us and to experience the infinite value and glory of Jesus Christ that we could never experience without him coming, being born, and then dying for our sins. I pray that you would do that today, Father God. Holy Spirit, come as we worship and make this a reality for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.